Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's money morphosiscom to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Welcome, Crystal Arnold here, founder of Money Morphosis and your hostess of Money Wise Women. So uh, there are some people who have felt this change and this need for transforming our economy and the way business happens and the way we think about money for decades. And uh, they were really pioneers who uh, foresaw some of the the destruction that the growth economy would uh, would create uh, on a planet with finite resources. And uh, one of our guests is one of those uh, such visionaries. Uh, Hunter Lovins is here with us today. I've long respected her work. And uh, since before I was born in 1981, she was um, already speaking about sustainability and the need for more uh, awareness around uh, both our economy and our ecology and the way that we uh, steward our resources on this planet. And um, in so pleased to have her today on the show to share her wisdom. Uh, so she's been an author and, and a real um, promoter of sustainable development for over 40 years and is president of Natural Capital Solutions, which is a uh, nonprofit. Also teaches sustainable business management at Bard College in New York and was a founding professor at Presidio's uh, grad school MBA and sustainable management program um, from 2002 through 2010. Uh, so she's really taught at various universities, consulted for many citizens groups, um, and uh, she has a book out uh, as well, which just won um, a Nautilus Award, uh, which is, um, we will talk about more. Um, gosh, there's so much I could tell you about Hunter, and and just uh, I think I will let her kind of speak to herself, uh, for herself, and, and some of the incredible um, work that she's done over the decades, and, and the legacy that she has created through her organizations, and more than 15 books uh, that she has authored. So, um, so pleased to have you on today, Hunter. Could you uh, tell us more about uh, what do you find so exciting about the work that you do? Thanks, Crystal. This work is exciting for so many reasons. Prime among them, the great people that I get to interact with. I love teaching. I love being with young people who are hungry to create their own path toward making a difference in the world. So I lecture pretty much whenever anybody gives me the opportunity to. I love writing. I mean, the flip side of being in front of a group of people and working with students, co-creating their knowledge and new knowledge, is holding up by myself 
in my office and doing research, writing, turning out a new book. The, uh, the new one, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life, as you mentioned, just won the Nautilus Award. Uh, I didn't even know it was nominated for one. And yesterday they sent an email saying congratulations. Like, oh, gosh, thanks. So it is, uh, it is starting to get some traction, which is, uh, which is a lot of fun. Excellent. Yeah, I feel like people are more and more hungry for the types of uh, things that you are illuminating and speaking to. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more uh, about this newest book and, and what people might expect from it? Sure. It grew out of a fight at the Club of Rome. The, the Club of Rome, is, as you may remember, is uh, the organization that uh, launched the book Limits to Growth which many people said was a book about doom. It wasn't, in fact. It was the first use in the English language of the word sustainability. And while it pointed out, and uncannily accurately, that if we keep going on the unsustainable path that we're on, we will start encountering ever greater difficulties, starting, they said, around 2015, culminating by around 2030, so right in the time that we're now living in, that ultimately could lead to civilizational collapse. And since that time, many other people, of course, have said we are on a collision course with collapse. And there are members of the club who believe that it's too late. We've left it until too late, and it's inevitable that we're going to crash and burn. And I and some other colleagues were saying, no, it's not. We have all the technologies we need to solve the worst of the problems facing us. We know what to do. Let's go. Stop whinging. Start acting. You know, we're the result of 3.8 billion years of evolution. Act like it. And they said, prove it. So four of us set out to show that, yes, the situation is dire, but we know what we need to do. Here's, here are the, the primary acts that we need to take in transforming our finance system, our corporations, how we use energy in things like buildings and vehicles and throughout society, agriculture, how we produce our food, and that we need to implement a whole array of policy measures that we know about that are available to us and that collectively doing all of this will deliver a higher quality of life, far greater prosperity. As for example, we solve the climate crisis at a profit, as we ensure that business and our economy operates in service to life, not in service to the 0.01%, that we enable ordinary people to have lives of far greater enjoyment and well-being. And so we just walk through systematically, if you will, a playbook of what's needed and how do we achieve all this. Uh, it's, the book is now getting a, a fair amount of, uh, of excitement and is being held up as the, as the playbook that's needed. For example, how do we implement what's now being called a Green New Deal? We didn't write, we didn't call it a Green New Deal. That phrase uh, 
actually owes back to Ed Barbier and Occam Siner at the UN, who started talking about it on a global basis. But uh, the, the more recent excitement about it uh, happened after the book went to press. But the book, in effect, is how do you achieve that Green New Deal? And so we talk about things like Randall Ray's concept of guaranteed jobs uh, as opposed to universal basic income, which is, a, a, I think, a much more politically feasible approach and would ensure that anyone who wants a job can have one at a living wage with full benefits, health care, child care, full retirement, and that we begin this just transition away from the degenerative economy that we have today to an economy that, well, is in service to life, to high quality of life for all beings on the planet, uh, humans and the beyond human world. Mm, love that. Uh, sounds like uh, quite, quite, I, I appreciate your systemic approach to things. And, uh, you know, my, my degree is in economics and I, I appreciate it when someone, you know, can, can think on the systems level and then bring it down into action, into communities, into empowering regenerative leaders and people to, uh, to co-create and collaborate in, in a way. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, what you see as a systems thinker as, as some of the key leverage points where uh, we can either see st- systemic change that would really make a difference towards a thriving world and or how individuals uh, listening may, may be able to engage with some of these things. There are so many leverage points, as Dana Meadows called it. Dana was the the one who taught us all how to do systems thinking. One of the more powerful is what you do with your money. Do you know where it is right now? If you have any uh, invested, do you know what stocks you hold? Typically, if you hold a 401k, any sort of a retirement account, you have no earthly idea what you're invested in and you have essentially no say over it. So an increasing number of people are starting to inquire into what their money is doing while they're sleeping. And a couple of years ago, a group of us got together to create a new finance company called Change Finance to do just that, to transform how people are able to invest their money the first product that we brought to market is a uh, an exchange traded fund that is truly fossil fuel free. So you can now invest in large cap American companies and know that your money is not serving the fossil fuel industry that is destroying the climate. Research by uh, some colleagues of mine showed that something like two thirds of all carbon emissions since humans have been emitting carbon, came from 90 entities, the oil majors, the coal majors, the sovereign wealth funds of places like Saudi Arabia. So if you want to do something really effective about climate change, move your money away from the entities that are the major cause of the problem 
sure, we can all do things like walk a bit more, should make us healthier, drive a bit less, shift to buying an electric car, which I've done. And again, your quality of life goes up because electric cars are a ton of fun. We can compost our vegetable waste and ensure that we're not uh, putting stuff into landfills that'll turn into methane. There are lots of little personal actions we can take, but it's much more powerful to make the statement and then to share with your friends and neighbors that you've done this, that you have moved your money from harm to healing, that you've gotten it out of the fossil fuel industry. The, a guy named Beavis Longstreth, who was a SEC Securities and Exchange Commissioner, said it's entirely possible, indeed plausible, that continuing to hold fossil fuel assets will come to be regarded as negligent because these assets are no longer performing the way they used to do. Recent study by some folks at a, at a group called IEFA showed that if the New York Common Fund had divested of ownership in fossil fuel assets, 10 years ago, they would have made $17.5 billion more than they did make, which is to say if they had, the New York's big pension fund had taken its money out of companies like Exxon and Shell and the other fossil companies and put it in any other investment in the economy, they would have made more money. The Fossil companies are dragging down the stock exchanges because they're not performing well. And people say, oh, but fracking is this booming industry. IEFA has shown that the fracking industry has not had a profitable quarter since it began. It's a bit of a Ponzi scheme. It, it depends on continued investment to enable the companies to keep punching holes in the ground so that we can all use natural gas inefficiently. And recently, the Financial Times wrote a piece saying, uh, this game is just about to be up. These guys aren't making any money. So you can switch your money to the companies of the future, the solar companies, the electric vehicle companies, or you can just do as we did, which is put it into 100 large cap American companies that uh, don't have as their primary business model the uh, digging up and selling of large chunks of fossil fuel. Mm, what a great project. Uh, and if people want to find out about Change, change Finance, it is at change-finance.com. And um, anyone can get involved as an investor. Um, yeah, so crucial where where our money is. And, you know, I feel like more and more people are wanting to align their money with their values, but often there's so little transparency, it can be really difficult to uh, to do that. So uh, I'm, I'm so glad you guys are doing that work to really screen uh, the funds and find uh, the ones that are in no way uh, supporting the fossil fuel industry. That's excellent. So our um, investment philosophy is, if these companies are going to be stranded, and this is a concern that was first raised by a man named John Fullerton, who had been 18 years at J.P. Morgan before he quit and created Capital Institute to start setting forth 
principles of a regenerative economy. Bill said if what Bill McKibben and the others, Carbon Tracker, are saying, that we have to keep 80% of fossil in the ground to, or we will roast the planet, is true, whose assets are those? On whose balance sheets do those assets sit? He calculated that the assets are worth something like 20 to $30 trillion. And if we leave them in the ground, those assets are stranded. John said, by contrast, the 08 financial collapse was over $2.7 trillion in mortgage assets. We are looking at the, <laughs> the dissolution in value of oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, the utility industry, the auto industry, the banks that hold paper in them, the insurance companies and pension funds that are invested in them. John said, this is going to be the mother of all economic dislocations. My friend Tony Seba, who's a Stanford prof, says this will inevitably happen within about 10 years' time for fundamental economic reasons. Tony said four things are driving this. Fall in the cost of solar, and I believe the U.S. record for cheap utility-scale solar was just hit up in Idaho, 2.2 cents a kilowatt hour for a utility-scale solar array. Just running a natural gas plant will cost you four to six cents a kilowatt hour. So this is half the price of just continuing to run a natural gas plant, let alone building a new one. And of course, when you build a solar plant, the energy is free. What part of free don't you understand? Fall in the cost of storage is the second driver Tony talks about, batteries. Here in Colorado, our coal-loving utility said, oh, um, we need 11, or, yeah, uh, 1,800 megawatts of power. Y'all bid. Any price, any source. They got back 58,000 megawatts bid. The lowest fossil, which was gas, was $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour. Wind was a little below two cents. Solar was a little above two cents. Wind plus solar plus batteries, three cents a kilowatt hour. Again, cheaper than the cheapest fossil. And when you add batteries to the renewables, now you have baseload power. You have fixed firm 24-hour power. So the utility said, no, did it again. Everybody did, and the numbers were essentially the same. Utility said, oh, um, can we shut down two of our existing coal plants and uh, pledge to go two-thirds renewable? This was in 2017. They've now pledged to go 100% renewable. So this is happening. Then add on to that the electric car. Volkswagen has said we're going to electrify our entire portfolio. Tesla is now shipping more cars per month than Mercedes Lexus, Tesla is becoming America's luxury car. In China, there are entire cities that are 100% electric buses. And then the autonomous vehicle. China just built a freeway for AEVs, autonomous electric vehicles. The things are on the road today. I was in Vegas a couple months ago and whistled up a lift 
and up came a dialogue box, would I take an autonomous vehicle? And I said, sure, please send it to me in the event they sent one with a driver. But you, you can now get these things. AEVs will drop the cost of what it is that you want, which is to get from here to there, by tenfold over paying to buy, fuel, maintain, insure a private vehicle. At a tenfold reduction in cost, these things are going to sweep. Tony says this will all happen. The world will be essentially 100% renewably powered by 2030. Tony is right. We are looking at the stranding of now Carbon Tracker has put a number on it, 25 trillion in fossil assets. Where's your money? You really don't want to be the last one out of the room. Wow. Thank you for sharing that so uh, clearly, just uh, putting it out there like, um, yeah, just the, the numbers are incredible. And the force, the tide is is in our favor uh, to really create a more regenerative uh, economy and, and that these green solutions really are uh, financially va- viable is super exciting. Um, our job now is to implement them in every one of our communities. So John Fullerton and a, and a bunch of us got together and we're creating a, a network of what are called regenerative community hubs. We're doing one here in the Denver Boulder area. What would it be to have an economy that is truly regenerative, that in everything that it does, it enhances the well-being of people and the environment? We don't know. A little kid, they can tell you generally within a degree of precision how to survive a zombie apocalypse. You ask them, what would a world be that you wanted to live in? They have no idea. Mm-hmm. So we need to, all of us, begin collectively dreaming, envisioning, and bringing into creation this new economy that is in life. So I said, here in Colorado, there was a prop on the ballot that would have made fracking much more difficult, much safer. And it lost because the oil companies threw $40 million against this little citizens group and said, if you limit fracking, you will destroy the Colorado economy. You will eliminate our jobs and our prosperity. That oil and gas extractive industries are the basis of the Colorado economy. And I got to thinking, is that really true? I know when I did some work up in Alberta, Canada, which is close to an extractive economy as you can get, services were 57% of the economy. And I thought, what is the Colorado economy? So I put a researcher onto it, bright young man named Jock. He found things like craft brewing gives more revenue to the state and employs more people than oil and gas. (laughs) I love that. The outdoor industries is four times revenue and jobs of all the extractive industries, so oil, gas, 
coal mining, timber, industrial agriculture. Natural foods is several times as big as industrial agriculture. And oil and gas revenues and jobs have been going down, while clean tech, which is already almost as big as oil and gas, jobs and revenue have been going up year on year. You add it all up, you add up all the pieces of the Colorado economy that we want more of, and it way dwarfs the historic industries that are dangerous, dirty, that we want to transition away from. And yes, we need a just transition of treating fairly the people who have committed their lives to these historic industries, but we probably don't want to be investing any more in them, and we do want to be laying out a coherent strategy of how do we move, how do we do a deliberate migration to build the kind of world we all want to live in. Mm. Yes, and and the conversations that are necessary and the transparency uh, to to be able to get accurate information and be able to collaborate in effective ways because uh, it's so taboo to talk about money, right? And uh, so often people are ashamed and feeling guilty and, and afraid to discuss whether it's their investments or how they're earning money or, um, you know, uh, I, I see movements like participatory budgeting and uh, the public banking movement as having a, a great potential for bringing greater transparency into our financial system. And I wonder uh, what you would like to say about the importance of having authentic conversations, uh, both personally with uh, people about money, but also in our communities about uh, how to transition to a more just economy. Money is useful. It's a tool. I was uh, going to lunch some years back with a gal who's a friend of mine whose husband has more money than God. And as we were driving along, she said, Hunter, you should be rich. I thought about that for a moment. And I said, best I know I am rich. I live where I want to live. I have enough money to keep my horses. I mean, at the time, I was living in uh, staff housing, which was a recycled Forest Service guard station. It was nothing elegant. But I lived in a very beautiful place, and, and I do now. I have a little ranch. I said, I, I'm doing the work I want to be doing, working with the kinds of people I want to be working with. I, I travel around. I said, best I know I am rich. And we didn't say much more of it. Went on, had lunch, went our separate ways. Next morning, her husband called me. He said, she's gone. I said, oh, I may have had a hand in that. He said, she said she wasn't happy. She loaded a backpack and took off walking. Said she was going to walk for 40 days. I said, well, uh, I know the trail that you, you said she's taken. Uh, if you saddle a couple horses and ride up it, you'll you'll find her. And I she'll be glad to see you. But I said, uh, sorry, I... I I may have triggered that. And I got to thinking, here's here's a woman with, with more money than she knows how to spend, and she wasn't happy. And natural capitalism is a little bitty NGO. We struggle every month to make payroll. I'm always 
on the hunt for foundation grants or donations. And yet we're happy. We're doing the work we want to be doing. We're, we're in the place we want to be. It got me to really thinking, money, money isn't everything. It may be useful, but it's not what's important. So true. I, I can really relate to that. And, and I think redefining uh, what wealth and success is, is, is going to be crucial as far as how we orient towards what, what our goals here are as humanity. Because when it's purely financial, we uh, leave behind all the other things that make our create well-being, like our, our inner sense of uh, emotional intelligence, our spiritual connection, our outer environment, our uh, relationships. And so there is so much more. Um, I've created a true wealth template that describes those things like, yes, financial wealth, but we also have inner wealth, relational and environmental. And, and we need a more holistic map of, of what really matters to us. Well, and it starts by asking ourselves what really matters. I ask my students to write down what do they believe? What are they willing to fight for? And they find it an extraordinarily difficult exercise. And it's, it's something you might try, all of you who are listening. What do you believe in? What matters to you? Now, unfortunately, a, a lot of us are having to deal with this on the spur of the moment as these various so-called natural disasters spawned by climate change come at us, whether they be wildfires in California or hurricanes all across the South or tornadoes across the middle of the country. Or, you know, as I sit here, we're about to get hit by another bomb cyclone, a massive storm that's supposed to go to blizzard proportions tonight. And when you suddenly face losing it all, you do have to come to grips with what of my stuff really matters to me. If I have to pick up and leave, if a fire's coming, if a flood's coming, if a, a cyclone's coming, what would I take? And then you quickly realize nothing, no thing is worth your family, your animals, your friends. Those are the things that really matter to you. Yet if you look how you spend your life, if you look at what you think is important day to day, I have to have enough money to go buy new clothes. I have to get a new iPad. I have to get this. My car is old and, and dirty. And you realize none of that really matters. Again, it's useful. It's handy. But game of things, where are you putting your time, which is ultimately the only thing any of us really has. How are you spending your moments? And are you mm. spending them on and with the people that you really care about? Hmm. Such an important reflection uh, and an inquiry for people to be in right now in, in such a time of transition. Um, we're going to take a quick uh, minute break here, and when we be back, uh, when we come back, we'll talk to Hunter about uh, one of her unpopular beliefs, also a key moment that kind of changed her uh, thinking about uh, money and the economy. And uh, so we'll be back in just a moment. 
Are you ready to enjoy greater financial freedom? Perhaps you're like Emily, a creative entrepreneur who wants to increase her income to provide for her family. Using the free video training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com, she learned the secrets to accessing hidden resources and creating lasting wealth. Emily learned a persuasive negotiation technique to bring in more money with her top clients. She boosted her credit score and opened new financial doors while reducing expenses. And she took specific steps to strengthen her existing relationships and create a safety net for her business. With the Discover Your True Wealth training, thousands of women have improved their bank balances and secured their family's future. With this free video course, you'll transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. Take charge of your financial situation with the training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com. Welcome back. We are here with Hunter Lovins, who's had, uh, gosh, four decades now of, of really uh, innovative work towards a systems shift uh, in the economy and, and the way that we steward our resources. Um, I am, um, oh, and if you want to check out her website, uh, Natural Capitalism Solutions is natcapsolutions.org, where you can find out more about her work and also uh, check out a copy of her new book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. So I want to talk um, some more. Uh, You know, I've been working with the Post-Growth Institute for a couple of years now, and uh, we're a nonprofit that really supports regenerative leadership and uh, shifting people's worldview from, um, you know, a um, growth-obsessed scarcity mindset to really looking at how we can create a better balanced flow of resources uh, within ecological limits. And, uh, you know, we do trainings and research and uh, really are weaving a new story with uh, so many of the organizations that we work with um, about how, how, what, what is beyond growth. Uh, in the post-growth world. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, your thoughts about um, our work and, and why it is important to, to look beyond growth. Growth is one of these topics that wraps people up in knots. We're told if you're not growing, you're dying. And so there, there are aspects to growth that are essential, healthy, that we all want, but we, we have forgotten to ask growth of what? We've conflated growth of GDP, gross domestic product, with well-being. And so you hear on the news every day, the GDP is up, the GDP is down. Oh, my God, the GDP has been down for two quarters. We're in a recession. And we all go, oh, dear. We have no idea what we're talking about. GDP is a measure of the throughput in the economy of money and stuff. In a sense, it's a, uh, it's a measure of speed, of velocity, and the extent to which we're digging up and briefly using and then throwing away more stuff. 
if a divorcing cancer patient gets in a car wreck, she's done wonders for the GDP. She's paying medical bills and lawyer bills and car mechanic bills and having to go buy a new car. Is she any better off? Clearly not. But a young man who stays home, doesn't have a job because he's taking care of his aging father, is doing nothing for the GDP. He's getting time with his father before he passes on. He's doing a service that uh, is needed, but GDP hasn't gone up at all. So there are many things that we want more of. Well-being, health, happiness, time with family, music, education, non-consumptive entertainment that we can grow the heck out of. We need to grow the industries that sustain us. So regenerative agriculture, local food growing, regenerative industries like uh, clean tech. We, we're going to need a lot of pure economic growth. Uh, estimates go as high as $90 trillion that has to be spent to meet the sustainable development goals. And all of this investment is not a cost. It's an investment. You're going to get paid back for it, and you will be creating a, well, a finer future. But we mm. do have to slow down the the waste. We have to move to a circular economy. We have to implement John Fullerton's principles of a regenerative economy, which starts with recognizing what he calls what Peter Brown calls right relationship, which is that the economy, this thing that we count the GDP of, is just a little linear process inside of society, inside of the biosphere. And if the relationship between the economy and society and the biosphere is out of whack, we're living in a degenerative world. Holistic wealth, we talked a bit about this. We, we think money is wealth, it's only a small piece of it. Wealth is well-being. It's belonging. It's having a purpose in your life. It's having health. It's having connections to family and to friends and to community. That's true wealth. Engaged mm. participation, that you have a say in the economy that affects you. This is the work of Francis Moore LePay and Economic Democracy, Edge effect abundance, this is a concept that comes from Janine Benyus and the practice of biomimicry, that in nature, the most abundant ecosystems are where two or more of them come together, where a forest meets a meadow or a river meets the ocean in an estuary, and they're abundant because they have diversity. And this concept of treasuring and enhancing diversity is something that our our economy needs to get a lot better, particularly in these troubled political times. The concept of balance between resilience on one hand and efficiency on the other, both are useful, but you need to balance between them. The concept of circularity. We're talking to each other because our blood is circulating in our bodies. The economy, similarly, 
needs to move to circularity. This is the work of Walter Stahel, who invented the concept of cradle to cradle and the circular economy, now being put forth by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation with their CE100. This is 100 companies that have pledged to be implementing a circular economy. When my friend Marcus Gilles, who was at the time at McKinsey, analyzed the economic impact of the circular economy, he found it would add a trillion dollars a year to our economy just to move to closing the loop of waste, reusing, remanufacturing, designing for reuse, as opposed to having this once through, throw it away mentality, which enhances GDP but it doesn't enhance the well-being of all of the rest of the bits of the system. And then finally, what I think is the most important principle, although John points out that all these principles are important and they're all interrelated, is Wendell Berry's concept of place. Wendell said, what I stand for is what I stand on. And becoming native again to the places where we all find ourselves we're a particularly rootless society, but we can become native to a new place. We can learn its biome. We can eat locally to the greatest extent possible. We can reduce our footprint on that place and become a contributor to it, not an extractor of it. Put all these principles together and you have the basis for this work that we're doing with the regenerative communities hubs. And we've got these hubs popping up in places like Costa Rica, where there are now two or three of them in development, the Hudson Valley, Buffalo, New York, Portland, Oregon, Kansas City, Iowa, here in Colorado, as well as overseas. There are apparently about 40 entities that want to create one of these regenerative communities hubs and you can go to the website of uh, regencommunities.net and find out what's going on, on with all of this stuff and, heck, create a regenerative community hub for yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's a great website. I've checked it out, their community, um, and uh, know several people involved and super exciting scale to really affect action. Um, I do want to talk about debt and the debt imperative and how it is driving this growth and consumption and, uh, and extraction of, of more and more goods, both from the earth and from our uh, society as we attempt to commodify more and more relationships and, and things like water and clean air. And uh, just curious, you know, what do you have any uh, approaches or things to say about uh, how, how debt is continuing to increase? And, and we're talking like not only private debt, uh, personal debt, but also of uh, many countries is just on the brink of, of even being financially viable, as we saw Greece was kind of uh, a foreshadowing there with the Greek debt crisis. Uh, so what do you have to say about uh, debt as it's embedded in our system and driving this uh, endless growth? We need to understand the concept of debt much better. There are real debts. If I borrow the neighbor rancher's tractor, 
I owe him a debt of not only giving him his tractor back, but giving him a little gift to say thank you. So there are, there are very real community scale debts, but when you get to the national level, it's really a different phenomenon. I work with a brilliant economist named Randall Ray, W-R-A-Y. It's worth checking out his work on one, what he calls modern money theory, and two, this concept of guaranteed jobs. Randy points out that a sovereign nation with its own currency should not fear debt. What it should be doing is borrowing if it needs to, to invest into the real economy. Now, Greece got in trouble because it did not anymore have a sovereign currency. It was part of the Eurozone. Europe is a monetary union, but it's not a fiscal union. If Mississippi is on the verge of going bankrupt, you're not going to notice. The, the feds will step in and help out. When the U.S. was at risk of another Great Depression, and we really were at risk in 08, we did what's called quantitative easing which is the federal government bought up bonds. How did we do that? Where did we get the money? We printed it. Oh my God, you can't do that. If you do that, inflation will get out of control. Did it? No, inflation has remained persistently at around 2%. We can print money if we spend it on things that are useful to spend it on. In a down economy, in a recession, or we were very, very close to a full-on depression, if you spend it on essentially anything, you will prop up the economy. And where we are now, if we were to be so-called borrowing or printing money, and spending it on the transformation away from fossil fuels, away from industrial agriculture, to a regenerative economy, ensuring that everyone who wants one has a job with purpose, with meaning, ensuring that all Americans are well cared for, and then ultimately, by, by example, all people on earth have sufficiency we would not trigger runaway inflation. We would actually trigger a much healthier, comprehensive economy. This goes totally counter to the whole neoliberal argument that a government has to be run like a household, like a business. You cannot borrow beyond your means. Randy says that's just economic mythology. And it's really worth taking a look at modern money theory and rethinking a lot of of our economic boogeymen. The economy that we have today is the result of a story. The story was written by 36 men who got together in 1947 at a hotel in Switzerland, a place called Mont Pelerin. Ludwig von Mises was appalled at what National Socialism had done to trash Europe. Frederick Hayek was scared to death of the rise in the East of Soviet collectivism. Milton Friedman believed the individual was the only legitimate economic actor. They and 33 of their closest buddies, all men, 
argued for 10 days and built the intellectual foundations of what they called neoliberalism. They were a wonkish lot. Friedman went back to Chicago, took over the Chicago School of Economics. So if you've had an economics class, this stuff is in your head. They uh, built the Mont Pelerin Society. They got their members as advisors to every head of state. They, they believed that people are basically greedy bastards, but that's okay because markets are perfect. And in a perfect market, you against me will somehow aggregate to the greater good for all. And they put this ideology out in all the economic schools, and in many of the national governments. And they said, you cannot borrow beyond your means. You, you have to run like a business. And so this concept of austerity started to take hold. In 1971, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce asked a man named Lewis Powell to lay out a strategy for how business could re-legitimize itself after the 60s. You know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, business was not feeling appreciated. And you can go online and download the Powell Random, and it lays out 26 targets of what business should do to become the dominant economic institution. Graduate schools of business, high schools, lower court judges, school districts, the media. On the strength of this memo, some outfits put something like $5 million for each of five years into creating and endowing Heritage Foundation, ALEC, American Enterprise, Cato, Hudson, Hoover, Heartland. Fast forward to today, our Cheeto-in-Chief, well, two years ago, our Cheeto-in-Chief walks into the Oval Office deer in the headlights because he did not expect to win. And he is handed a playbook written by the Heritage Foundation. Here's what you do. Here's your first hundred days. Here are your appointees. Go. These guys have a strategy of how it is that this ideology of neoliberalism is going to be the, the dominant economic narrative. And we're just crickets. What is our narrative? What is an economy in service to life? How do we get there? So to some extent, that's what we sought to do with the book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. But this is a conversation that needs to happen in every community. What would it mean to have an economy that really worked for you? Not for the 0.01%, but that worked for you. What would make mm. you happy? Wow, so important. Thank you for evoking these conversations and uh, really appreciate those uh, those perspectives on what is the new narrative, because clearly our idea of what the economy is and that finite story is is running its course. And, and we need people like you who are bringing forth the regenerative uh, vision. So we need yeah. to rethink the narratives that we're all operating on. And we know this intuitively. When we go out and buy something for ourselves, we feel this momentary, ah, I got it. When we buy something for somebody else or we do something for somebody, we gift, we, we help create the gift economy, 
we have this warm glow in ourselves that just goes on for a long time. Mm, so true. So true. Um, I'm wondering if briefly you could tell us about an unpopular belief that you hold. <laughs> sure. Cows are going to save the planet. You know, it's, it's fashionable now to say, oh, we should all be vegan because uh, the, the industrial way in which we grow meat truly is evil. The flip side, though, is regenerative agriculture, regenerative grazing in particular, turns out an essential part of solving the climate crisis at a profit. So if Tony Seba's right about energy, by 2030, we're no longer emitting much carbon for our energy. Now we need to take the carbon, the excess carbon that's in the air, put it back in the soil where it becomes a nutrient, not a pollutant. The best way to do that is grazing animals the way the grasslands of the world co-evolved with grazing animals. The animals dense packed. Originally it was predators. Now we do it with electric fences. When a grazing animal eats grass, the roots slough polysaccharide sugars. That feeds the biological community in the soil, particularly the mycorrhizal fungi, which is what mineralizes the carbon that's coming from the sugars, from manure, from trampled biomass. That's why when the pioneers came across the Great Plains, they found 10 feet of thick black soil. That black was carbon. It got there by grazing animals. So the myth that taking animals off land will somehow be better for the land is wrong. We need more grazing animals. We just need to be grazing them holistically, doing regenerative management of land. Gabe Brown in the Dakotas, when he started doing this, he was a corn soybean farmer going broke. He said, I'm going broke, I'll try anything. When he shifted to this, he went from a little over 1% soil organic matter, carbon, in his pastures to over 11%, and he's now wildly profitable. So there, there are examples from Gabe, from Will Harris down in South Georgia, where on his 25 acres, he hires 137 people. His neighbor commodity peanut farmer hires four. So the neighboring community of Bluffton, Georgia is coming back to life. And Will grows cattle and sheep and pigs and chickens, a whole bunch of vegetables, regeneratively. And as a result, he's healing the land, he's healing his community, he's healing the people who eat this food. This is food that's healthier for you. So cows save the planet, as uh, Judith Schwartz book said. Love it. That's That's so great to shift our perspective and not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but look at the uh, just centuries of how, how things have been done sustainably and, uh, and in partnership with the land and natural living systems. Um, I'm curious in, in the last few minutes here, if, if you have a key message for people listening in these times um, about what, what's happening and, and the potential that you see, um, what, what is the key message for us? My friend, the folk singer, Kate Wolf, said, find what you really care about and live a life that shows it. 
And this is something that each one of us has to do for ourselves. What is it that you care about? And then what is it that you can do each day to make that caring manifest? Find a dot. Do one thing. And do it every day. One of my current dots is uh, no straw, thank you, when I order a drink. And I'm not 100% perfect about it. I forget. There's that damn straw. But don't beat yourself up to that. I remember uh, 90 entities are responsible for almost all of the carbon pollution. Be gentle on yourself. But make this a practice. Every day, one thing. One Do one thing to make your life, your world, your community a better place. Mm, Wow. Thank you, Hunter. Um, I've just been so inspired by our conversation and really encourage people to, uh, to check out um, your website, um, both change finance and also natural capitalism solutions, and uh, also get a copy of, of your new book, a finer future, creating an economy and service to life. Um, just love how you are really weaving the story of a regenerative economy and culture that can create a thriving world here together. And uh, feel super inspired by everything you shared here today and really appreciate all of your wisdom and decades of, of being a visionary and really practical implementation of, of a more uh, healthy and just economy. So encourage everyone to check out Hunter's work and uh, and find something uh, like she just said. To one thing that you are passionate about and and uh, and make sure you commit yourself to uh, to doing that and to creating the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.